It's not your fault. How childhood trauma shapes you and how to break free, that is today's show. Welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 352, and I am with psychologist Alex Howard, uh, who I recently discovered uh, looking at trauma and homeostasis, and one of his YouTubes popped up, which of course turned into six YouTubes that I (laughs) watched on the trot. And then fortuitously, an email pops into my inbox letting me know that Alex has a new book and uh, if I'd like to have him on the podcast. So all of the above happened within the space of days, which is a pretty good sign that one says yes and moves forward. I love Alex's work. Uh, One of my new favorite people in this uh, trauma slash homeostasis space uh, because He recognizes the power of trauma to shape uh, a chronic illness experience and the duration of a chronic illness experience, uh, as well as for it to take a hold of us when it doesn't need to. And as you will hear, as we discuss in this show through various different questions that I ask along the way, Alex really helps us unpack Uh, the various aspects of uh, a traumatic experience, what it is, the relativity of it, uh, how it then impacts our physiology, uh, and then how to unpack it so that it doesn't continue to keep us trapped, uh, which is entirely possible and is a really brave body of work uh, that Alex steps us through. So I'm really excited about this show. I felt genuinely um, like it was a very supportive environment, a very uh, nourishing conversation, uh, and I don't believe it should be particularly triggering triggering for anyone, even if you are someone Uh, navigating trauma as we speak. I think you'll feel like it's more of a big blanket and a cuddle. Uh, And that's certainly what my intention was, uh, as was and is Alex's work. Um, But of course, empowering as well. You know, you can't stay under the blanket and cuddle and cry forever. Uh, Part of it is actually facing things, working through things, breaking free from things. So you feel empowered and powerful again. Uh, So that's very much uh, included in this conversation as well. Now, we have a couple of wonderful sponsors. It's a brand new month. Uh, Of course, still with us is Oz Climate for their incredible Winix air purifiers uh, and dehumidifiers. Do not wait until your humid season, um, more backburning ahead of summer perhaps, or unfortunately as is often possible when it comes to an El Nino year, which has been declared here in Australia, bushfires. Now, um, that can mean some pretty smoky air, even if you are nowhere near them. And we all saw what happened in the brutal bushfires of 2019 and 20, uh, which, of course, were brutal for far more reasons than stinky, smoky air for so many Australian communities and people and losing homes. The reality is 
as I said, that smoke is far, far reaching. And in Australia, I remember sitting next to my air purifier on top of it practically uh, as it kept my air safe uh, working away. There was nowhere to escape it. Outdoor air was definitely not healthier than indoor air at that time. And uh, I, it was heartbreaking to see that basically, you know, purifiers were, were out of stock everywhere. So um, I just think appliances like this for me are health insurance, right? And people think, oh, but that's $400. And I know things are tough right now. People are making lots of decisions around, um, uh, you know, the dreaded cost of living saying, but it's true, you know, people's mortgages are higher right now. So therefore, um, the nice to haves are tougher to uh, justify, but I don't see these appliances as nice to haves. I see them as health insurance whether it's dehumidifier on after the family showers to prevent mildew in the bathroom uh, or to mitigate a water leak situation uh, or a humid season to prevent mold from taking hold inside your home or uh, a fire situation where you need uh, to protect the air inside your home. So 10% off, Lotox Life is your code ozclimate.com.au, head there. You have the different square meterages for the different units to help you make a decision. And you have the wonderful little hygrometer, which is 20 bucks. And a hygrometer helps you stick it on the fridge and it helps just keep track of what the humidity situation is inside your house. Um, so that you know, if it goes over 50, 55, 60, where mold can be encouraged to grow, uh, that's the time to close the windows close the doors and flick on the dehumidifiers and bring that humidity down and keep it nice and dry inside. Uh, we also have one of my favorite brands, uh, Walida, joining us for October. It is time to stock up, peeps. You have 20% off Walida site-wide. Lotox Life is your code, and this is going until mid-November. So you've got plenty of time to plan out what you need Think of your favorite products and make your swaps if you're new to low-tox living. Um, and we also have a wonderful giveaway if you're listening live this week. Hop on Instagram or Facebook and join it to get the entire, entire skin food range, including the wonderful new face care range. So if you have somehow been under a low-tox rock, uh, Walida are a B Corp certified leader in the certified natural product space, right? They've been going since 1926, founded by Rudolf Steiner. So you might've heard of Steiner Education or Biodynamics, also founded by Steiner as a form of regenerative farming. The focus is obviously always on where efficacy, ethical sourcing uh, and uh, nature and natural communities converge to really produce something beautiful. Well, leaders trusted hero range is skin food. I don't know too many people who haven't heard of skin food or don't have a tube for dry elbows and knees or to use as a flight cream uh, or to use as a glowy primer under their makeup. Lots of different reasons you'd use skin food. Um, it's wonderful for dry skin, super, super nourishing. And they've now brought out the face care range. Uh, I was grateful to be invited to the launch, the media launch, which means I got the little goodie bag and I got the nourishing face night creams, as well as the beautiful cleansing balm. Oh my gosh, it's so nice. Um, I normally make my own cleansing balm, the recipe from my first book, but I gotta say, 
<laughs> this is definitely competing with that. It is so good. It's delicious, actually. Uh, and the, um, the, yeah, the textures of these products are so gorgeous. So if you've been in the market for a new face care range and you're on the normal combination to dry sort of side or a more mature skin, I'm 47, 48 now. So, uh, yeah, I'm headed there. And I definitely feel like my skin drinks a lot more thirstily in the winter. That's for sure. And, uh, on, on cooler spring days. So, um, I love it. And then if you've got dry skin, it's going to be perfect for you in summer as well. It's really, really nourishing, gorgeous range, 20% off. So even if you just want to try the new range, uh, your code is lowtoxlife, walida.com.au is the website you can head to to try it. And uh, of course, Walida is available worldwide. So um, while the offer might not be, I would definitely be heading out there to try and find it because it's stunning stuff. Well, it has come time to uh, deal with something a little bit more serious than face cream, which is trauma. And uh, Alex's new book, It's Not Your Fault, which I read before we had the chat, was brilliant as well if this is something that you feel like you need some support with and want to get educated on. Uh, enjoy the chat and I really look forward to hearing which aspects of it um, were particularly touching for you. Uh, I'll share some in my Instagram stories coming up. Hello, Alex. How are you? I am very well, Alex. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> it's wonderful to have a fellow Alex here and uh, to have discovered your work recently, uh, which we're going to unpack today. And of course, your beautiful book, which made me think of that I mean, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, so I went straight to Goodwill Hunting with the It's Not Your Fault scene um, from the wonderful Robin Williams uh, that just, I think, really spoke to a lot of people in their late teens, early 20s at the time. Uh, and then to see that as the title of your book and some of the wonderful things you talk about in it, I just, I'm really appreciative to have your time to unpack that. So I want to ask you first, Alex. There are lots of different reasons that people move into their chosen field. Some people stay in the chosen field for a lifetime. Some people hop around. You have firmly planted your feet in psychology, but with a really interesting um, focus on homeostasis, which is what caught my eye and ear. I, I want to uncover whether that was due to a personal exploration uh, into psychology and the mind uh, and what you needed or whether it was what you were seeing out there and you felt that you could help. How did you find psychology? Well, the first thing I've just got to say is when we came up with the book title, um, I then immediately thought, oh, no, it's that scene in Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> and everyone's going to think that we that. that. Um, and maybe it was it was, it was was somewhere Whoops. in the background. Uh, it's one of my, my favourite films. We um, did not then, rehearse this. This has literally just come up. And, uh, well, so is it a good thing? I think it's a great well, thing. I, 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 it's, it's a great film. And in a way, it, it's, it's, the, it's really one of the most iconic therapeutic moments captured in... Yeah. Um, in a in a movie um mm. and i actually re-watched it after we decided the title and um yeah i was like i love this film <laughs> so but i will yeah. answer your question so, so so your question was um how i got into to, to this work so really there's how i got into um 
self-development and psychology and health and so on. And then there's more specifically how I came to specializing in uh, in trauma. Mm. So I got into this work more broadly because as a teenager, I suffered from a debilitating uh, chronic illness. So I suffered from um, ME or chronic fatigue syndrome or as many other names that, um, that it's been given. And that was a very difficult seven-year uh, journey. The first couple of years, really just waiting for someone else to find the answers, and that didn't go very well. And then a very um, committed and proactive five-year journey of, of doing many, many different things. And along the way, I, I didn't find any miracle answer. What I found were lots of pieces of a jigsaw, which, which came together for me in, in a certain way. And then in my early 20s, I really set up the clinic that I'd wanted to exist in those years that um, that I'd been ill. And so in my um, early to mid-20s, that clinic, um, which is still still going, the Optimum Health Clinic, um, became uh, very, very successful. And in a way, what really happened was I went from having a, a physical journey to then realizing that I hadn't dealt with a lot of my own emotional history. And you know, we've all, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but we've all, we've all had difficult, painful experiences that have shaped us in, in, in certain ways. And for me, two of those events in particular were one, my father leaving soon after I was born and, and, and not um, then being seen again. Um, and growing up with a sister, which had um, very severe mental health issues. So there was a lot of um, volatility, unpredictability, um, and very, very extreme um, uh, behavior. So I found myself in um, my mid-20s suffering from uh, debilitating anxiety, um, having panic attacks, struggling to have a relationship longer than a few months, because as soon as I got a bit close to someone, I kind of freaked out and kind of moved on um, and really got to the point that I was struggling to function in um, in, a, in a sort of viable way. And set off on a on a second journey really which was a journey to understand the impacts of my um childhood trauma of my emotional history and you know you mentioned about homeostasis again i'm sure we'll talk about about that more but realizing that at the core of the problem was my nervous system was massively dysregulated and in a way a lot of the intense anxiety was a wisdom in my system of trying to speed up to disconnect from the feelings and the emotions that I didn't know how to feel, I didn't feel safe enough to feel. And in a way, really what that did was shaped a lot of my thinking as a clinician um, in the sort of, sort of 18, 17, 18 years since then, that there is enormous wisdom in, in our bodies and in our responses. And if we can look through things, look, look at things through the lens of seeing behaviors as being adaptive, not necessarily as being broken. And, that was the origin of my interest and then in time my, my specialism in um really understanding the impacts of childhood trauma but mm. also how how do we break free from them yeah wow and then the me cfs years were perhaps also your body saying can't deal need to rest this is all just too much yeah I, I wow think, mm. you know there again as you say what, what, what I do want to say is, as well is that how I look at chronic illness, which has been a big part of, of, of my, my clinical career, um, but also trauma and but also things like addictions, depression and so on, is that 
they're all complex multifaceted areas and so mm. of course we're looking, we're looking you know through the lens of trauma and that's a really important one i certainly wouldn't say that that all fatigue related conditions are just trauma there's lots of other pieces yes. of jigsaw and completely agree and yeah and it's an important piece of that jigsaw Mm. Yeah, I use the soup analogy often, lots of different ingredients or the stage set with different actors that come into play to make it all the one thing that it becomes. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think uh, it's uh, being too reductionist can then often lead people towards chasing silver bullets and then being angry that they don't have the same result as Guru X on Instagram had by trying this one thing and uh, yet they also had MECFS and it can lead to a huge amount of frustration, I think, if we try to oversimplify uh, complex problems with lots of, as you say, pieces to the puzzle. So we've talked about trauma in a lot of different ways on the show over the years. Uh, and there are a lot of people who find low-tox living because they've needed some sort of uh, circuit breaker, some new way of thinking about things because nothing conventionally helped or worked. Uh, and and so that's an incredible privilege to be able to help provide some ideas and, and places to look. I would love to unpack trauma in the way that you talk about it, though. You are so generous with how much you share on YouTube. I'm sure there will be some some binge watching after our show comes out. Um, can you talk about uh, how you um, how you define trauma? How you, I mean, you know, compartmentalize different. Uh, I'd prefer for you to start talking now, Alex, because it's just <laughs> such, well, it's so it's so big and yet it's one thing. And that is incredibly yeah. confusing in and of itself, right? You know, it's really interesting. So when I, when I sat down to write the book, I didn't sit down explicitly to write a book on trauma. The, the title, the, the original title of the book, the book that um, the, the publishing deal was signed on was um, a working title of um, you can't heal what you don't feel. And the focus was really about the importance of feeling the unprocessed emotions, which, of course, the reason why we have unprocessed emotions is, is because of trauma. Um, and then I realized as I was writing the first section, well, I've got I've really I'm talking about trauma. So I've got to define trauma. And at this point, so we we have a a, a company uh, producing online conferences. And so our, we, our trauma super conference um, has been attended, I think, now by nearly a million people. Um, I've asked hundreds of the world's leading experts, what is trauma? And um, I felt a bit of pressure to answer the question well, because I had access to all these different perspectives. And so as I was writing, um, I spent a lot of time just trying to get in my own thinking, my own understanding, really to not just the essence of, of, of what trauma is, but also in a way, trauma is not just what happened, but it's how what happened shows up in our life now. And I think, I think in a way, too much of the conversation around of trauma is about the events and so the you know the, the very well um documented and, and excellent research on adverse childhood experiences tells us that if we have certain types of childhood events things like um parents that have addiction issues or parents that are incarcerated or physical sexual abuse or so on that that is trauma and it is but there are many people that haven't experienced those kinds of events, 
which have clearly still been shaped in impactful and unhelpful ways from from their childhood but also people two people can experience the same event and the the way that event shows up in their life now is also very different so what i came to conceptualize in in the writing of the book was that in a way what happens in childhood echoes through our life as an adult and echo is both a metaphor and an acronym so the acronym and, and i'll sort of explain it very simply and then we can sort of unpack it in a bit more detail so the acronym of echo is yes there's the events but those events can be what typically people used to call big t and small t trauma i'm not a particularly big fan of that definition because i think the the sort of then the suggestion is that small t trauma is like small things that don't matter and sometimes the less obvious traumas are actually the ones that shape us shape us more so I tend to talk about overt and covert, so obvious traumas that we may identify, but also the more subtle experiences. You know, you, you come home from school one day and you've had a hard time. Maybe you maybe you put your hand up in class and said something dumb and didn't intend it. Everyone laughed and, you know, the teacher wasn't very gracious about it. And you come home and what you need is emotional softness, holding and to be allowed to have your feelings. And what you get told is mum and dad are stressed and, you know, you need to be a grown up and um, you actually get rewarded for not feeling your feelings. And you go, oh, of- hold on, hold <laughs> on. You get rewarded for not feeling your feelings as a child. I think that is something to just sit with for a second because that's huge. You know, my um, my mum once said to me, um, must have been sort of 15 years ago around the time actually that i was really starting to do this work ted you were such a good baby i was like well, what do you mean just like you never cried ah there and, it is and she, <laughs> I, I, I felt like saying mom that's not good i was frozen <laughs> but, but but it's you know and this is not... red flag mom <laughs> exactly um it's like you know that they started the the, mm-hmm. the the spousifying from from a young age, but it's um. So we have these these events, they can be overt, they can be covert, but it's not just the event. So the the next step of echo, the C of echo, is the context within which the events happen. So we all have three core emotional needs. These needs, they're not like wants or nice to have. They're they're needs to our emotional body, like physical needs to our physical body, like water, oxygen, food, and so on. So these are the needs for boundaries. That's the ability to say yes and no to other people, but also yes and no to ourselves. So stop that thing, or I need more of that, or internally stop a behavior or start something new. The need for safety Safety as a child, we get through our nervous system co-regulating with our caregivers. And that co-regulation tells our nervous system that we're safe and that installs a sense of safety in us. And then we hopefully learn from that grounding how to self-regulate. So that means that we get triggered or impact or something happens, but we can come back to a point of balance. If we don't get the co-regulation, we often don't learn well how to self-regulate. One of the reasons why practices like meditation and yoga and so on are so popular is their ways of learning how to self-regulate one's nervous system. Third of these core needs 
is the need for love. This is not being told we're loved. It's not knowing we're loved as an idea. It's feeling that we're loved in our body. And it's not being loved for what we do or for who we are. It's being loved as we are in that, you know, in that moment and in any moment. It doesn't mean we don't get boundaries. It doesn't mean that we get our behavior doesn't need to be shaped at times. But there's an inherent sense of, of, of feeling love. And if we get that as a child, what that sets up for us in life is a sense of, of, of self-love and self-acceptance and a basic sense of okayness as we are. So when these core emotional needs are not well met, we tend to be much less resilient. We're much less able to be shaped and impacted um, much much less able to to respond in a healthy way to to the impacts um, of life. So there's the events, there's the context, the three core emotional needs. The H, which going back to where we, where you started, the H of echo is homeostasis. And so our our um, physical and emotional body has all kinds of balances that it needs to keep. Our blood pressure, our blood sugar, our blood temperature, for example, um, but also our nervous system has a state of balance where it's effectively we are in a calm, grounded, settled state. Now, if we experience um, a sudden shock, now let's let's say that you and I are walking down the street in um, in Sydney and we don't see the great big lorry that's thundering towards us. In that moment, we are in physical danger. And so we need to respond. And so hopefully what we get is a big hit of adrenaline and cortisol and we leap out the way of, of, of the lorry and um, take a few breaths. And then we come back to over time, maybe it takes 15, 20, 30 minutes. We come back to a point of balance. So that's responding to a, to a sudden acute threat. The problem is, and that's the same thing, that's the same analogy people use about the saber-toothed tiger thousands of years ago. Um, the problem is that when the threat doesn't go away, so it's kind of like the lorries chasing us everywhere that we go, then our nervous system, the homeostasis, so the word homeostasis means um, safe, same, stable, like a consistent level, the homeostasis starts to shift. So if our homeostasis, let's say our balance, our being in a calm, relaxed state is like a three out of 10. Like we want to have some activation so we can engage and respond, but we're consistently at seven or eight or nine or 10 or whatever. Over time, we normalize to being in that state. The homeostasis, the homeostatic balance shifts. This is what in um, my work with chronic illness over the last 20 years, we, we've, we've called a maladaptive stress response. And so a stress response, which is healthy, becomes maladaptive because we normalize to being in a dysregulated state. So there's the events, overt or covert. There's the context, whether or not the three core emotional needs are met. There's a homeostatic shift that then happens in our nervous system. The O of echo is the outcomes of that in our lives. And this is where I, I feel very, very strongly about something. In my work with, with health conditions over the years is the recognition that a lot of um, mainstream medical intervention is treating symptoms. So someone has... Um, or body parts. Or body mm. parts, right. Mm. Right. And so you're treating the symptom, you're not treating the cause. The same thing I think is true often with trauma because the symptoms, the outcome of this dysregulated nervous system 
can be chronic anxiety, for example, as I was experiencing. It can be addictions that effectively we are self-regulating a dysregulated nervous system using drugs, alcohol, whatever it may be. Can be depression because effectively there's like going back to being the baby that doesn't cry, like there's a freeze. We're not not like to cry as a child is a very healthy thing. If we don't cry, it means something something's frozen. So a lot of the things that will bring people to um, see therapists, counselors, and so on, addictions, depression, anxiety, self-esteem issues, I would argue are outcomes of a dysregulated nervous system, which is the product of um, traumatic events over or covert happening in the context of core emotional needs not being met. Hmm. And as I listened... <laughs> I was thinking, okay, so who's the perfect person with the perfect life that comes away into adulthood completely unscathed? Let, let me know when you find them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start looking. You cover over there. Um, okay, so. And, and just, 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 sorry, just respond to that. No, please. But because you know it's really it's really interesting writing a book on childhood trauma as the father of of three daughters so i got a 6 year old uh, in about a few days time 10 year old and 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 12 year old so i'm writing this book and of course the whole time I'm reflecting on my own parenting and my own inadequacies and and, and failing as a parent and then randomly had a, a meeting last week with um, the headmistress of a couple of the girls school and it was on the day the book came out so i gave a couple of copies of the book and i was like Talk, talk about setting oneself up for failure in um <laughs> in 20 years time when my kids are in therapy going yeah my dad wrote a book on childhood trauma but 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 completely screwed us up um but i think the point i want to what i want to make is that the perfect childhood leaves us ill prepared for an imperfect world mm. so the goal here and the sort of the kind of let yourself off the hook for parents is Children need to have struggle. They need to grow their, their emotional muscles, their physical muscles. They need to have things to push against. They need to grow their will. The goal as parents is not that everything is perfect all of the time. The goal is ultimately to make sure at, at the core, these core emotional needs are being met, that children are given healthy boundaries, that they are told no. Like I think we have a whole generation of kids that have become into their 20s at the moment that haven't been given enough boundaries. And in a way, the pendulum swung. Their parents had too rigid a childhood. So they think the solution is to take take that away. And then it swings too far the other way. And so we've all been impacted. We've all been shaped. It's not about blaming, shaming parents. So there can be places to hold people accountable. But fundamentally, it's not your fault that you have trauma, but it is your responsibility to do that healing work and to go, okay, well, stuff happened, but what do I make that mean and what do I do with that now? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, yeah, it's it's like my friend Dr. Jade Teeter says, not everything happens for a reason, but you can make meaning from everything that happens and there can be wonderful work to do with what happens um, and tough work. Right. So I was listening to a nutritionist talk about, uh, you know, the, the popular example of how when the liver takes in uh, apple juice and Coca-Cola, um, the liver doesn't tell those two things apart. And I think just coming back to what you were saying about uh, how people can experience little and big trauma, um, it, 
trivializing the little as if it's not supposed to make a difference or be impactful and therefore one should put their chin up and get over it and all the things that we say that aren't helpful um, in those circumstances. Uh, how do we own uh, what we have experienced and almost it's almost like there needs to be this step where we feel we have permission for something that isn't perhaps bad to someone else or that bad, in inverted commas, really being something we need to work through and move through and forward and beyond um, from. Because I think that is, you know, especially in chronic illness, especially in MECFS, I've had uh, and continue to um, work on SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, uh, which is actually quite similar in in a number of ways, uh, and the nervous system dysregulation uh, is is a big part of it. Um, but people can't see those things, kind of like anxiety or a, a little bit of uh, of uh, a period of feeling a bit blue, you know, as some people might say, rather than actually saying, "No, I'm depressed, and I think I am, uh, and I need help." But because someone doesn't look unwell. Um, we're like that kid who gets rewarded for not showing the feelings. Um, and, and that in itself then produces this whole other trauma because you're not actually being met where you are. So can you talk about that, Alex? Because I think that's a big one. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, part of, part of what's brilliant about, we were touching on earlier about how we tend to respond is there's intelligence in that. And we normalize, right? Mm. So in a way, whatever we experience consistently, after a while, that becomes what's normal. And that's why the research shows that someone that grows up in, for example, a physically abusive relationship is statistically significantly more likely to end up in a physically abusive relationship as an adult because they've normalized to mm. something that somebody else finds themselves in that situation. And the first warning sign, like I'm out of here. Like, this is just not something that, that I'm, I'm going to accept or tolerate. And so this normalization to experience on one hand is our, is our saving grace, because it means that we don't re-experience the sort of the pain and the, and the suffering because we managed to normalize to it. But it's also how we get trapped. It's like one mm. of the ways I talk about it is that, the walls that we build to protect us as children become the walls of our prison that keep us trapped as an adult. Yeah. And so we have to, to find a place to honor and respect the defenses that, that get created and recognize that they were needed, but also to realize that they can be the very things that now become the problem. And, mm. you know, we've all, we've all had painful, difficult experiences and, it's not about, you know, of course, if you took a continuum from the most horrific to the most wonderful and you could start placing people in different places. And sometimes part of the difficulty is that people can go, well, you know, I wasn't physically or sexually abused or I didn't have this experience. Therefore, I don't have trauma. Therefore, I don't have anything to deal with and I don't get to have any empathy or sympathy and so on. Mm -hmm. and, right. And 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 this is not about better or worse. It's not a competition. Right. It's not. It, it, <laughs> yeah. It's about what there's no podium. 
Yeah. Right? yeah. There's no prize for the, for the most traumatized or the least traumatized. It, it's about the, whatever your experience was, was your experience. And we've got to bring empathy, compassion. We've got to bring, um, we've got to bring understanding and awareness. Like one of the things that, that I found very interesting over recent years is that there's, there's been a, a, a real surge in understanding around neurodiversity. And it's been really interesting to me as someone working as, as a clinician, but also looking at my, my, my staff, looking at close friends, looking at family and so on. And I can think of, of quite a, quite a few people like, you know, a dozen or so people will start to come to mind who have had adult diagnoses of things like ADHD or being on the autistic spectrum or so on. And the, the, then having that awareness is like, oh my God, I can finally make sense of why I've struggled for like years. And thought, right. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and thought like, I'm just broken or I'm crazy or there's something wrong with me. And there's something that's really, really powerful about going, wow, this is the way that I'm wired. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not broken. It's just this, 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 and, th and then learning about how do I need to navigate my life in a way with real understanding and real awareness around that. And I think, the same thing happens with with trauma when we can really understand that we've responded the best we could and we've been shaped and we've been impacted. Then we can learn to live in a way that that honors that, but also where appropriate, we can heal those things. Mm. And so can we talk about some of the ways trauma that hasn't been addressed, healed, felt, which I'd also like to talk more about, um, so put that on the list. But how are some of the ways that it is then showing up much later on and you thought you had a reasonably decent childhood, uh, but then there are some things that if you actually unpatch them and felt some of the feelings, you might realise or maybe you're triggered by a particular thing and you can't even figure out why that was so bothering to you. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll touch it on an issue from a, a personal perspective. So I, I mentioned that one of my traumas was, was my father leaving. Up until the age of about nine, 19, I think I was, I literally never considered the impact of growing up without a father. And then- Wow, 19. Doing, yeah, it, because I, that was just how it was. I just, mm. just realized that. And then I was doing a, a family constellations workshop Um and part of the way family constellations work is you basically pick people in the group to represent key key um, key members, and then there's a sort of way of of unpacking the, the experience and letting it sort of move and heal. And um, I had this sort of kind of complete revelation, this massive kind of emotional release at the experience of going from absence of father to presence of, of someone representing the role of father. And realizing all of the ways that has shaped and impacted my my childhood and my identity and my life and who I believed I needed to be um, in the world. And when we can start to have real understanding of, well, I've normalized in, in these ways, it's had all kinds of impacts. It's showing up in my life in all kinds of ways. When we have that understanding, then we can start to do something about it. So like another example might be that someone started um, maybe smoking marijuana in an unhelpful way at, at a young age and then moved on to, you know, alcohol and then maybe moved on to harder drugs. And for, for decades, they just struggled with, with drugs. And would look at 
friends and other people around them, their peers, and that they could use drugs from time to time and then not use them. But what they realize in their experience is that it's just there's no there's no half measures. It's like completely all in. And then they start to unpack and look at childhood trauma and realize that there was a lot of painful things that happened and they were never allowed to feel the pain, didn't have any support in feeling the pain had a lot of then nervous system became very dysregulated. Maybe that was manifesting anxiety. Maybe there was a shutdown that manifested more in a depressive state. And the use of, of drugs and alcohol wasn't recreational. It wasn't going out and having fun on a Friday and Saturday night. It was survival. It was, it was the most effective adaptive way that this individual had found to deal with the feelings that they didn't otherwise know how to deal with. And so in that instance, if you're treating addiction as a medical problem and you're just trying to take away a substance and and then just trying to go for withdrawal, but you're not actually addressing what are the emotions that have not been processed and not been felt, then it's like having someone that's got, you know, a, a, a serious physical injury and just taking the painkiller away and not mm. actually addressing the physical, the physical injury. And so many of the ways we <laughs> this whole thing <laughs> as an as a bone is like kind of hanging out as a dose right. on codeine yeah it just right. doesn't make it's, sense it's... does it and we that analogy is perfect because when it comes to the mind we don't give it the same gravity yeah and and it's like you know pe- people sometimes people that think that they're, they're the most for want of a better word crazy to me, are just the most, have been using the most intelligent responses that were available at the time. Now, this hmm. is not to let us, any of us off the hook and go, oh, well, that's the best I can do, so I'm, I'm not going to do anything about it. But it's not about shaming ourselves and making ourselves wrong. It's about why, why making sense of why our life got constructed the way that it did, and then going, well, if I had another way of dealing with these emotions and feelings that have not been processed. Hmm. If I have a way of healing that, if I have another way of being in relationship with myself and in relationship with other people, then maybe I don't need to do these things anymore. You know, it's like if the way that we've responded is that like I was living in a state of chronic anxiety, if we can actually feel and process and metabolize those feelings then we don't need to speed up in our mind and keep running away from those feelings, just that kind of constant frenetic state. We can actually then find a place of ease and a place of peace. And then life can be very different. <laughs> Let's talk about that recipe. Okay. <laughs> um, so processing feelings, we're there. Uh, I want to ask you, for everybody listening, the next time we have a difficult feeling, a feeling that feels uncomfortable, a feeling we don't want to be feeling, what should we do? Well, I'm going to give you a longer answer than you're probably asking for. But oh, no, answer. no, we're here that's for long answers. Good. No, it's good that's because good. I think there's something to learn about that a response in the first place and there's probably an investigation piece i would imagine from having read your book and then from there we do the things but i think it's worth talking about because 
often we brush them off or we notice them and then we're just trying to actually ignore them. Um, we certainly don't want to revisit them in a quiet time later on because I'll oh, thank God that feeling's over, yeah. you, you yeah. know, but that's not helpful. Well, the, the challenge is most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, the, at least the intensity of what we're feeling is often not about what's happening now. Exactly. Right. So we're yeah. all we're all walking around with a metaphorical black sack of all the feelings and emotions that we've not processed. And for some of us, some of us, the top of that sack is really tight. For other people, it's a bit less so. And so the, the the example I often give, you know, where you know you're driving driving around around about. Yeah, you got roundabouts in Australia. So sorry, mm-hmm. this, that's always worked very well in America because people are like, we have roundabouts. Yeah, what? <laughs> so, so you're driving you're driving you're driving around a roundabout, and someone cuts you up. They cut you up on the inside, and you go from okay being, in australia we don't cut people up on roundabouts that sounds awful what is that you mean like kind of butt in <laughs> like, in so front so of you're, a, yeah, so you're going through and someone kind of cuts through the inside and sort of like put, put, pushes you out yeah okay right got it yeah. i mean it's not like it's not like like a like a, a really massively frequent occurrence so it's a, mm. I'm, I'm using it as an example to, to make my point um so we get we get cut up and we go from being seemingly relatively calm to literally murderous rage like we want we, we want we want to literally pull over that person and we want to murder them and we're visualizing <laughs> in our mind all the things that we, we're going to say and all and all all the ways that we're right and they're wrong and and you know if if stoning was still legal they should be stoned to death for the, for, for the fact that they cut us up but what's really happening right like this other person's driving badly. There could be a hundred different reasons why they're driving badly. Maybe they're rushing because a, a loved one is in distract. Like, there's a whole bunch of things that could be going on. But how did we go from being seemingly calm to murderous rage because someone can't, <laughs> someone's not driving well in that moment? Yeah, that's it. Listening right. to our nice little audio book or right. uh, <laughs> yeah, this like, podcast. Maybe, maybe we're listening, listening, listening to, to, a, to a book on Buddhist principles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We still want to get a murder, right? <laughs> So <laughs> what's happening? The black sack with all of that emotion, the tops come off and a load of stuff is, is exploding out. Maybe what's been triggered is the feeling that no one ever pays attention to how we feel. Maybe what's going on is we always feel we've been butted out the way. Maybe what's mm-hmm. been ha- happening is that we feel that um, other people's needs are always more important than our own. But something's happened in that moment where we've been triggered and there's been this massive explosion of, of, of emotion that's coming out. Now, for some people, that emotion actually comes out and they start honking the horn and shouting and screaming at, at the other person. For some people, they go to anxiety. Some, they go into a shutdown. They just don't feel anything. But to really be able to respond to the world in a healthy way, we need to deal with all the stuff that's in that black sack. We need to not be being triggered and reacting from all of our history, but we're actually, you know, to 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 live in the world, we're going to have emotional responses. You know, we're going to have times that we're happy, we're sad, we're frustrated, we're 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 worried, whatever. But a healthy emotional life is that that's actually about our life now. It's not all of that historical stuff, and so. For me, a big part of the trauma healing work that for many of us needs to happen is we need to be able to process and metabolize and digest that history. To do that, one way of thinking about it, you know, you use a couple of of sort of health-based functional medicine metaphors. 
to digest food, there's a series of steps that needs to happen. So the first thing is we chew, right? We chew the food that helps break it down. We release some enzymes in our mouth that begins that process. And then we swallow and then our stomach uses um, uh, acid and so on to break the food down more. Then it goes into our small intestine. We start to extract the energy from the food. And then it goes to our large intestine and we expel it. Same thing is true really emotionally. To process emotion, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to chew on it. And that can be reflecting about it. It can be talking to someone else, therapist, friends, um, whatever. But we've got to give voice. We've got to give some space to what it is that we're feeling. But then at some point, we've got to be able to swallow. We've got to be able to let it go. And we've got to start to break it down. It's got to be felt. It's got to be allowed to move. We've then got to extract the, the wisdom, the lessons, what we need to from it. And then it needs to be expelled and, and we need to let it go. What that often looks like in reality emotionally is we've got to chew on it, but we've also got to move the energy of it. That moving of the energy can be anything from screaming into pillows to moving our body to dance to, um, you know, when I was doing a lot of anger work, I was doing a lot of, um, of weight training. Um, in a way, it, it, the different things work for different people, but we've got to be able to find ways to shift and to process and to heal that emotion. And just like with a with a physical injury, you know, if we get a if we get a cut, as long as we keep that cut clean, maybe we've got to stitch the skin together, it heals. There's no there's, there's there's not a single drug or miracle thing that we can do that we can take that makes that healing happen. Our body does that. The same is true with our emotional healing. There is a natural inbuilt um, capacity to heal, but we've got to create the, the circumstances that allow that to be able to happen. Hmm huge uh i really love that you brought through the physical movement of the the processing as as a big part of it and how that looks different for different people uh, i didn't realize just how significant tennis was going to be for me um it was my childhood sport i played at competition level and then just didn't pick up a racket for 20 years. Uh, you know, it happens to a lot of people. You start adulting and and you just kind of forget what you really loved doing and because it's not all organised for you, especially me with ADHD, like it is literally out of sight, out of mind. And I picked it back up when my boy was small and played through sick, sick I mean, such sick times living in a water-damaged building. I can't tell you how unwell I was, um, poisoned by a mould. And um, and there was just something that kept me showing up for tennis. Even though I could barely breathe, even though I could barely move, I just kept showing up. And I think metaphorically, in retrospect, uh, that was quite significant. Um, but also how powerful it is to remember what truly brings us joy disconnected from responsibilities or partnership dynamics or being a mom or any of the labels we have our work whatever but just joyful things um to actually keep us moving forward through really tough moments and I think um also through the tough processing of feelings 
I mean, how powerful that is to then really hyper-personalise and think, well, if I'm going to deal with this sack of full of stuff, um, you know, what is a safe space for me to do that in? What is one of the things that brings me the most joy that might actually be able to help me confront that and move through it? Um, and start to chip away is, is am I on the right track uh, it, it's, it's really funny you use the use the tennis example so um I found myself uh, taking back up golf this summer um so mm-hmm. I played but like you played tennis I played golf a lot as a kid and then when I was doing um a really intense chapter of this emotional healing work one of the things I, I, I did is I used to go to a driving range sort of four or five times a week and just mm-hmm. get a driver and just hit a golf ball as hard and as far as I possibly could um and the funny thing is, having picked up golf again this summer, I have one good shot. I'm really good with the driver. Everything else is, is a disaster. And so I've been playing with various friends. And they're like, why have you only got one good shot? I'm like, well, let me tell you the story. About 15 years ago, when I was processing my anger, I used to just go and destroy golf balls four or five times a week. Yeah. But there's, there's, there's something about, you know, of course there's places in, in doing inner work that we have to do things that maybe we don't feel a natural ease towards doing. You know, one mm. of the things that we mentioned around um, core emotional need of safety. So for the vast majority of people, some kind of practice that helps regulate their nervous system is really important. Yeah. Meditation, yoga, tai chi, qigong, um, walking meditation, there's lots of different ways of finding our way towards that. It takes a certain amount of discipline to build a consistent practice. And particularly if we grew up in an environment where we didn't get modeled healthy boundaries, we're either too rigid and too hard on ourselves, or we don't give ourselves enough space, or inner critics always tearing us to pieces when we forget to do it for a day. But there is a reality that we have to commit to that healing process, and we have to be consistent in doing that work. But that doesn't mean that all of our inner work has to be work. It's also, you know, as you point to it, it's finding the ways to bring joy in it as well. And some of my happier, very odd thing to say, some of my happiest memories in my life of being on retreats and workshops and my shittiest and darkest places, but with other people walking that path and the sense of kind of connection and camaraderie and the sense of, wow, I can go to these really hard places and yeah, I feel more connected, not less connected. And mm-hmm. the people around me that I don't really know, I can feel their care and their support for doing that. It's something that's so magical about that reclaiming of ourselves and that that kind of reawakening of our of our true potential and capacity. And so I always want to make the point that yes, inner work at times really has to be work but it can also be such a magical journey that we go on. Absolutely. And I remember going on a, one of the um, Joe Dispenza's advanced retreats uh, and it was after the first couple of years of being really sick and, um, you know, I had come from this leadership position in the low-tox community as someone who had all the answers for feeling your best self and reducing your environmental toxins and then all of a sudden I didn't. And I had no answers for myself, let alone for anyone else. And and also felt like because of the dynamic of leadership, I couldn't be one with um, in, in a certain way. And I remember going on this retreat and just feeling so relieved to be in the midst of a one with dynamic. 
where no one really knew me and uh, I didn't have to be the healthy on top person. Uh, and uh, it kind of taught me a lot about leadership in itself um, to not feel that you need to have all the answers, to feel that you can still lead from behind sometimes. Uh, and in fact, that can be one of the most um, uh, supportive ways to lead from. Um, and yeah, it was, it was really interesting to, to go through that at that time. And I remember being picked for a healing, uh, which, um, you could sort of put your name forward if, if you wanted one. And, and my name didn't get, I I didn't get approached the first day or the second day. And then I, I did on the last one. And I just remember thinking, oh gosh, I didn't realize I needed that as much as I did until I was chosen for it. And I think that was really interesting to me as we talk about trauma now, Alex, because it kind of comes back to what we were saying before. Like I didn't know I deserved mm. to be allowed to feel the bad, the, you know, just all the crap of of how hard something's been. Yeah. Yeah, one of the questions that I always always want to ask people who are in big responsibility leadership roles is where are you allowed to fall apart? Mm. Because if we always have to have it together, if we always have to be the one that has all the answers and knows what to do and is in a responsible kind of leadership role, that is never sustainable Mm-mm. because we all fall apart sometimes. Absolutely, and we see that in the wellness community a ton. And, you know, I see people saying, yeah, just surround yourself with like all the amazing people who are going to like cultivate that, all those habits that make everyone feel fantastic all the time. And I'm like, mm, until we don't. And then where do the people go? Because they certainly won't feel comfortable saying they feel like crap that day um, because we're all cultivating all the habits. And I think we can end up on tenterhooks with health and that's very unhealthy. Well, I think what you're speaking to there, you know, a phrase uh, I, I quite like that's been used um, in recent years is toxic positivity. But mm. another way of putting it is that that when we're trying to be positive all of the time, the problem is what we're really doing is running away from ourselves because mm. we're not positive all the time. In fact, the gateway to feeling so, so, so you can't you can't close your heart selectively. Mm-mm. So when you close your heart to to anger or to sadness or so on, you close your heart to a lot of other things as well. In fact, a lot of the the work that I've done with people over the years about really learning to process and feel their emotions is that in each of these feelings that we may not know how to feel, there are also enormous gifts and treasures. So for example, to my experience of people is to really find your true power the pathway to that is through your hatred and through your rage because it's in your hatred and rage that is your aliveness and your power and this is not about acting that out with other people obviously i'm not suggesting <laughs> that when the person cuts you up you actually do go and get a, a kind of shot <laughs> no, no. the head off it's like but, <laughs> please speak but, to your doctor before making any <laughs> rash decisions yeah, yes thank you mm-hmm. um, but there is um if that emotion is in our body and not moved, mm-hmm. we need to move it. But when we move it, we're also freeing up a lot of other things. And, you know, our real personal power is that sense of I can do this and not as like an, an affirmation or an idea, but like an embodied sense 
of our capacity and our strength. And to really feel that, we've got to be able to move all of the emotion which might be trapped within that and 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 tied to that. And so my experience is when we we really work on having a healthy relationship to our feelings and our emotions, we don't then spend our whole life trying to be positive. We just find that we're happier. We just find that we're more we're more naturally in states of balance and harmony. We're much less triggered when when we when we need to be resourceful. Those resources are there, but also we don't believe that we have to be. You know, this is a whole other product of trauma. Like, who's the person we believe we have to be to try to meet those three core emotional needs that weren't met? So, for example, who do we need to be in the world to get the core emotional need of love met? And maybe the narrative has become is that people will only love me if I'm the best health influencer or I'm the I have mm. the perfect body or I'm the most positive person or, you know, my Instagram feed is full of pictures of, of me looking exactly the way that I think I should be. If what we're really trying to do there is meet the core emotional need of love, we're on a pathway to a whole world of pain because it mm. won't work. You can't meet you can't meet an inner deficiency by anything on the outside. You have to address that inner deficiency on the inside. You sure do. And so, when it comes to realizing that we've now got a shed ton of work to do, <laughs> yes, sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Yeah, feeling great about my to do list now emotionally. Um, you talk about boundaries in the book, and I want to bring this up at this point because I think um, healthy boundaries for a healthy nervous system can be confusing in itself uh, because sometimes, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is how much should we work on and within what kinds of boundaries? Like how do we know that we need to bring a professional in, let's say, versus um, just flying blind and and seeing whether a bit of tennis might help us process a few things you know just just help give us a bit of a framework for the work ahead I guess is what I mean your book does a brilliant job of it of course if you've got a copy there you can show us oh bless you free, yes. free chance that's up to plug a book love it no it's beautiful um you know the first step is really saying to ourselves it's not our fault but all the same, as we've said, there is work to do. So how does one get started knowing when we might need to call in the pros and what we can safely do ourselves? What does that look like in terms of analysing those buckets? Well, I think the first thing I would say is if we've got significant healing work to do, which, which many of us have, like anything else in life, we're going to get out what we put in. Mm. And so in a way, you know, we can talk more about what we can do with therapists versus with ourselves versus, you know, books, online courses and so on. But in a way, it doesn't matter what you do if you're not wholeheartedly doing it. And so, mm. you know, the amount of times I've had people say, well, you know, I was in therapy for 10 years, but nothing changed. And it was like, well, well, what happened between the sessions? Like nothing, I was going to saw someone every week or every other week and talk for an hour. And it's like, so an hour in your week or an hour in your month, you do anything for an hour, not a lot is going to change. It's like, you know, like my, my kids having um, like singing lessons or piano lessons. It's like, 
always trying to make the point it's not the half hour lesson that matters it's whether you practice between the lesson <laughs> oh we are having parallel conversations <laughs> with our children right. <laughs> that, that half hour ain't, ain't, ain't gonna turn you into Jimi hendrix you know no. whatever it may be. so <laughs> it, it, it's like there has to be an investment and a commitment in in doing that healing work mm. and and part of that is a self-discipline piece. Part of it's also, though, a self-worth piece. It's like, am I really worthy and, and, and deserving of this? Part of it's also just getting started with a new habit and a new pattern. And, you know, if you can get some momentum, it always gets easier. The hardest thing with all of these things is, is just like the hardest thing of getting fit is to get to the gym. Once you get there, it's mm. like you've done the hard bit. Then you just got, got to follow through with it. Absolutely. Um, well, you're rewiring a brain that is already programmed into a sense of comfort around the old patterns. And so then how important is it to actually recognise how hard that work is and keep reminding oneself, wow, you're doing something really hard. That's why you don't feel like going to do your Qigong right now. Um, just remember that and do it anyway and how good are you kind of thing. Yeah, we, we you know, in a way, we put it a slightly different way, that one of the products of, of trauma is that we didn't get our three core emotional needs met Therefore, we didn't learn to meet them for ourselves, which means we're probably a bit of an ass to ourselves. If we can learn to be well boundaried with ourselves, if we can learn how to self-regulate our known nervous system, if we can learn how to be kind, loving and caring towards ourselves, i.e. we can learn to meet these core emotional needs. That may be the most important thing that we do on our trauma healing journey, because it's not just what what we do, it's the way we approach what we do. So whether you work with, you know, there's many different kinds of therapeutic work, who you work with, different kinds of ways of self-regulating your nerves, there's, always, there's many, many choices. The way we do what we do, in my opinion, is often more important than what we do. You can have the the best form of, of, of meditation, like, you know, the most scientifically proven, effective way of working but the way you're meditating is just basically being hard on yourself the whole time. You're actually not moving things forward. And so, you know, I came to a lot of my healing work on this, this very achiever driven, right? I've got to make, be the best of this, make this happen. And, and, it, and it's like the very way that I was doing it was the problem. <laughs> like, yeah. The healing like, boy scout kind of thing. We really can't collect my badge. I did a really right. good job today. It's like, yeah. it's like the, the problem you're trying to, the problem is you're trying to solve the problem with the problem. Mm -hmm. So it it's finding a way of, of a real balance between being consistent and cultivating healthy habits, but also not losing balance in your life in the process of doing that. And in answer to your question about working with practitioners versus working with yourself, I've been amazed how much good inner work people can do with themselves through books, audio books, podcasts, you know, like this, online courses. Um, I had a slightly um, humbling impact about uh, four years ago because I rolled out a uh, uh, my reset program which is a 12-week online uh, coaching program and i had some of my own um active patients at the time sign up for the program and i remember thinking well i've already taught you I, why, why would you do an online program like you're working with me one-to-one -one? 
And then they started reporting they were getting better results working with the program they were working with me. I was like, how does this work? <laughs> Whoops. And then it was the realization, <laughs> maybe I'm, sorry, I'm, not, I'm not as good a therapist as I think I am. But part, part of the realization was that they were moving from having a session every few weeks to be able to rewatch things. I could have more time to explain things in more detail, that they could download the exercises and reuse them. They could, like, so all those constructed components could actually be more powerful. And so I do think there are places that practitioners are really important. I think particularly if there's any kind of um, more complex mental health issues, any kind of uh, neurodiversity, any kind of physical health issues, more than anything else, getting accurate diagnoses is really important. Um, you know, there's a whole massive rabbit hole we, can, we haven't got time to go down now, but around um, complex chronic illnesses and a lot of people haven't got an accurate diagnosis. And so you're not therefore being very effective in terms of the intervention or you have a diagnosis of symptoms, not a diagnosis of causation. So for example, chronic fatigue syndrome is like, well, you know, you're chronically tired, but it doesn't tell you why, you know, chronic pain is another example of that. Um, so you, so I think clinicians are really important for, for diagnostic elements. Therapeutically, there are certain places that it's really difficult to go without someone providing that emotional holding and support. And I think that can be important. Um, and sometimes also clinicians are really helpful to see things we can't see. It's like we're trying to, you know, a bit like I was saying, we're trying to solve the problem with the problem. Like we're looking through a very specific lens. Someone's got to take the glasses off and show us the glasses so we can see the way that, that we're seeing things. So there's definitely a real place for be it kind of one-on-one -on -one sessions or kind of group coaching or kind of in-person events. Um, but I always want people to know not everyone can afford those things. Not everyone has easy access to those things. And with a really committed approach to, to our inner work, there's a lot that we can do with ourselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it makes me want to ask what could sometimes be a hairy question, but sometimes you as an individual have decided I am motivated to do this work. I am ready to go on the journey. I am open to what I might find and will do my absolute best. And then there's family. There are. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you put that. And then there's family. <laughs> so it might be a partner who thinks is poppycock or a, a, a mother-in-law from a different generation who says, what do you need to go and be doing all of that for? You know, there's nothing wrong with you. Come on, don't be silly. And these things can be um, perhaps where we talk about boundaries a little bit more. Like I always say with my coaching clients um, in um, one of my courses, just be careful who you share with sometimes because you really want cheerleaders along the way for difficult work. You don't need the naysayers and um, that can in itself sometimes create some frictions because you realise perhaps that you're outgrowing certain friends or even a relationship and that can be an like you know I'm sure you've worked with people where that was the surprise no one saw coming along the way when you then have to start dealing with family dynamics and partner and friendship dynamics for the person who has done the work yeah yeah well I'll, I'll tell you a, a funny story then as a, a point I want to make as, as well so 
um earlier this year um my um my in-laws were, were you mentioned in-laws so <laughs> in -laws were over. and my uh, my father-in-law we were talking about kids and schooling and he's like well, you know well, obviously that you know they'll, they'll be going off to boarding school soon and I was like of course they will um I said I said I said I said no they won't be going to boarding school um you know there's actually quite substantial data about um how for not for all kids but for many kids um can be uh quite traumatic to be separated from parents at, at a young age so well, I haven't got trauma. My children haven't got trauma. Um, so that's interesting because I'm actually married to one of your children. I'm, 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 I'm very, very newsflash, dad. Not, yeah, not, not, not. This is about about my my wife's childhood history, but it's like substantial trauma related to being sent to boarding school at, at, at a young age. Um, and in those situations, you know, it, it, it's tricky because. Um, I think my wife could sort of see the steam starting to come out of my ears and and, and the desire to have a very, very um, strong discussion. Uh, mm -hmm. Thankfully, I managed to step back from the edge because I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been been helpful. And I think- You weren't the guy in the roundabout being cut up. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I nearly yeah. was. But, but, Good, um, you did the work. Um, well done. But, you know, in a way, when we change, so I talk about a metaphor of a dance of change, and I don't remember, it's not mine, but I don't remember the origin of this, but we are, let's say we're dancing the, the tango with, with someone and we decide we're going to dance the foxtrot that person has one of three choices they're going to pull us back into the old dance or they're going to come into the new dance with us or we're going to dance separately but they have to make a choice of one of those three choices now what we hope is the people that we love and we care about will come with us in the new dance but that often means that they've got to chat, they've got to go on the same journey we're on. And by the way, as you and I've been talking about for the last hour, it's not an easy journey. So we're actually asking them to go to places they don't want to look at. I don't think my father-in-law wants to explore his own childhood uh, trauma, which is probably fairly substantive in places. Um, when people pull us back, it's not because they don't love us. It's normally because they do love us and they miss us and they want things the way they were before. And we have to find a way to navigate the people we want to stay in relationship with that don't want us to change. It's tricky. And in a way we have to honor them and where they are, but we also have to honor us. And we have to recognize that to say yes to ourselves, we have to be able to say no to other people. And that's not always easy. Um, and it's sometimes bumpy and it's sometimes a bit like a pendulum that has to swing too far the other way. And I often say to people, when you start putting boundaries in place, just give yourself permission to get it wrong and screw it up. And if a few times you're a bit too hard or a bit too rigid, it's OK. You can always clean it up afterwards and if, if you need to with that person. Um, but to really do good inner work, we've got to change. And that change is going. That change is going to have impacts, and those impacts can be tricky. Thank you. I know that was a, a a very big extra question I threw in there, Alex, towards the end. But I just think it is something that comes up quite often when people choose change, or when you have change forced upon you medically, like we have to go gluten free, and then that has a dynamic of of people going, "What? Why? Oh, I didn't have any problems with allergies in my day," you know. Uh, we could yeah. talk about it from <laughs> lots. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah, we could talk about lots of examples of how other people tend to be uncomfortable with your change if you've made a decision that then creates a need for a discussion, a boundary, 
a mutual respect to be formed that didn't need to be articulated before. So thanks for giving us some language around that. And of course, some language around the work ahead for the people who've been listening to us today. Uh, hopefully inspired to check your book out. It's not your fault. It's a beautiful book. Uh, And as I said, very generous on YouTube with so many resources, so many patients sharing their stories as well with you, which I think is, is really helpful for people. You know, a lot of us just want to feel like, oh, great. Thank God I'm not a crackpot. It turns out there's a whole bunch of people navigating these difficult things that they've realized they need to work through. So really lovely to, to chat with you today and, and speak through some of them. Well, Alex, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our, our free flowing conversation. Great questions. And um, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share with your audience. You're very welcome. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.